Good morning. Hope everyone's doing okay. It'd be hard to find out right now uh, to go around the room and do that. Uh, I, today we're going to continue our series in the Gospel of Mark. I'm really excited about that. Uh, when I was uh, younger, but not that much younger than I am now, I worked for UPS, the United Parcel System. Uh, it's like, uh, you know, the postal service, but way better and cooler clothes and things like that. And I'll never forget the day uh, or what my supervisor told me when I quit. I'd been working there for a while. I'd, uh, they kept promoting me, uh, which was nice. Uh, they kept giving me more things to do. And then one day I had the opportunity to leave UPS and just serve our local church full time and, and help that church plant begin to grow and, and to lead it and those things. And, and that was really exciting. And so I told him I quit and I told him why, that I was going to, you know, go, you know, start. And he said, wow, it seems like you're really going to get in on the ground floor. And I thought, well, that's kind of funny. The church is 2,000 years old, but that's all right. And then we ended up having a good chat. And this is why I'll never forget. Uh, he told me, I don't have a problem with Jesus. I'm just not sure what problem of mine he solves. Uh, he was a former Marine. He had uh, survived uh, combat. He had built his life. He was in charge of one of the largest distribution centers in the United States. And when he, whenever I, we had this conversation about Jesus, as I was quitting, uh, kind of leaving him in a, in a lurch, uh, he told me, I don't have a problem with Jesus. I'm just not sure what problem of mine he solves. I think that's a pretty great statement. I think that's, honestly, if we dive into where we are and what our doubts are, our struggles are, or why uh, our lives are not congruent with what we say we believe, it's probably because, uh, at least in part, we don't have a problem with Jesus, the idea of Him, the fact that He existed, the fact that He died on a cross. All of those things are fine and good. We might even sing about them, but in the end of the day, we're just not sure what problem it is that Jesus solves in our lives. Does He solve uh, the need for knowledge? Does He solve uh, our problems with our jobs? Does He solve uh, our emotional state? What, what part of it does He actually solve for us? Is Jesus for me? Will his kingdom actually be enough for what ails me? At what depth or at what level does Jesus actually enter my life and leave me different or changed? What Jesus does in the the Gospel of Mark is pretty surprising. Last week, we talked about how he arrives uh, on the scene, he walks into Galilee, he proclaims this huge message, like the time, all of time, all of human history is complete. I'm here. And then he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. The whole restoration of the world, it's at hand, it's happening. This is going on, I'm here. And then he says, repent and believe. This massive cosmic message, right? World restored. What he does right after that is really surprising because he uh, starts just talking to single people. Small moments. The, the story goes from 
man, huge speech to just one-off interactions with people. People with short lifespans. People that had hunger and disease and mental illness and oppressive power structures hanging over them. Jesus announces this cosmic transformation of the world, the arrival of the kingdom, and then he just goes to people. People like us. And I think that through these, these scenes and what he does with them, I think it answers, at least in part, the question of what problem does Jesus actually solve? Is Jesus enough for me? Uh, and so I'm going to read uh, quite a bit of scripture, which is fun. Uh, it's from the Gospel of Mark, as I said, chapter 1, uh, verse 16, is where we'll start. It said, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea because they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw Jesus, the son of Zebedee, or James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one who had authority, not as the scribes. And immediately they were in the synagogue, there in the synagogue was a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing within him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed. And so they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. And he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey. And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew and James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her. And he came and he took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases, cast out many demons, and they would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were there with him Searched for him, and they found him, and they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go to the next towns that I might preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him. And said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once. And he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priests and offer your cleansing with Moses 
what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in the desolate places and the people were coming to him from every quarter. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there were no more room. There was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not enter, get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, See, your your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were questioning within themselves, said to them, What do you question? These things in your heart. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately and picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like that. The last part. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That is the passage. Mark is great. He likes to use this word immediately, give you a sense of the pace and the power and the punch of Jesus on the move. Like he was doing things. He was going places. He had stuff to say. But this question that we start with, what problem does Jesus solve of mine? I have no problem with him alone. The first people he comes to are these guys fishing. Brothers, a couple sets of brothers who had dads and parents and had a profession. They, uh, they fished for fish. You know, it's a, it's a great uh, vocation, a great job to have. Everything lines up neatly. You don't have to explain yourself to anyone. Like, what is it that you do? He simply, they would say, I fish. And everyone knew what it meant, right? It's a pretty great, pretty great job. They'd done it generation after generation. They had their own boats, and Jesus comes to them and says, follow me, and I'll make you become fishers of men. It's a great play on words, right? 
And I think sometimes we read that and we think, cool, what Jesus does is he comes to us and he gives us freedom uh, to quit our jobs. You know, like I'm, I'm taking some time off to date Jesus for a while or whatever it might be. But what's interesting about these disciples who do hear Jesus and drop their nets and begin to follow him for the rest of their life, one of the interesting things is, is they continue to fish. Uh, you see it throughout the story. Uh, some of our, our exciting parts where Jesus walks on water, they're in a boat because they're still fishermen. Uh, in fact, Jesus uses the fact that they have their own boats at regular intervals, saying, hey, let's go to that side. Let's get in your boat, Peter. And they go in the boat. Uh, in fact, one time, they're fishing, uh, and Jesus comes in this really mysterious miracle, and he says, hey, don't put your nets on that side. Put your nets on the other side. And then they do, and they get lots of fish, which is mysterious because it's like, were the fish not all there before? I mean, does it matter? But that's what happened. Uh, even in the very end, uh, after Jesus has died and risen again, he himself goes and fishes and, and gathers some fish and makes a nice roasted fish breakfast for his disciples and eats with them, waiting for them to come back from their day of work fishing. See, the, the, the call to become fishers of men isn't this, uh, hey, leave your occupation forever. What Jesus calls these people to do to become fishers of men is to have a radical changing of who they are, a, a change of calling, a change of vision for life. That their life now, forevermore, is not a meager collection of fish and taking it to the market. Their life forever has a new purpose, a pur- purpose of Jesus and his kingdom and its coming, and that defines everything for the rest of their life. What does Jesus change? What problem does he solve for you? It seems, at least from this part, that one of the things he changes, or problems he solves, is what does your life mean? What purpose does your life have? What purpose does your work have? Here Jesus comes and changes it and says, yeah, you'll still do your jobs. You're still going to do work. But now it's under a different master. It's for a different purpose entirely. It's for me, and it's my kingdom, and it's coming through you. Jesus changes your calling. From merely working for survival, or maybe working to to be inspired, or working to make a difference in your industry, now, because of Jesus, uh, you're working to participate in the greatest story ever told. He solves that problem for you. Next, there's a a great scene. Uh, It says immediately, so I don't know how that exactly happened. But immediately, they were now in this place, and Jesus is teaching. And at first, the people around him hearing his teaching are amazed. Like, we've never heard someone teach like this before. This person has authority. Uh, as if he's the person who uh, wrote these words. You know, like, I teach, you know, whatever authority I have to talk about this comes from, I don't know, things God's done in my heart or study that I've done on this, the words. I'm trying to understand the words of God. Jesus was teaching uh, as if he wrote the words. 
as if he was the word itself, as if there was no difference between uh, the words that he was expounding upon and the words that he was saying about the words. Does that make sense? He was, as John says, the word, right? And so they're amazed. This person has authority. Not from learning or not impressing them, but because he was the founder and the perfecter of all faith. And people were were impressed by this. Jesus changes uh, whose authority? What problem do you have in life that Jesus solves? We're often always trying to find someone who's in charge. And if we could just find someone who could be in charge and be good, if they could just be good at being in charge, life would be better. Some of us, we're our own authority, right? Uh, Even when we come to the scriptures or the big questions of life, we're the boss. It all leaves us a little bit wanting. I'm pretty bad at authority. Pretty bad at extending it to others who I know will fail me. Pretty bad at living out authoritatively in my own home, in my own life. The problem Jesus solves is that He is the King that comes and lays down His life, serves the meek, the humble, and He says, I have all authority on heaven and earth. But it goes on. There's this demon-possessed man. That it's not just that, that Jesus comes and changes our calling or that He gives us a good sense of authority but also there's this demonic, evil oppression. This man comes wailing. He's one of the first people to acknowledge who God is as as the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebukes him. He tells him to be silent. He tells him to come out. There's a huge scene. But what's left after the huge scene is a person who once was in shackles and oppressed is now free and clear, and even speaking, and talking, and in right mind, and whole. A person oppressed is now free. Transformed from insanity and hearing lies and living under the oppression of evil and wickedness, this person is now roaming free, liberated. I know this, I I, I love, you know, being one of the leaders of this church, I love following Jesus. One of the things that I know is that we are oppressed by many kinds of evil. Many kinds. There's systemic evil that we experience in each industry. You know, it's like you could just take out whatever it is that you do for work and put in another one, and the same systems of evil exist in all of those. You're oppressed by them. I also know we're really oppressed by lies that we, we take in and we believe wholeheartedly. You know, you're not enough. You'll never be good. No one likes you. No one appreciates you. You'll never be accepted. Uh, You'll never be safe. You'll never uh, have a good life. Like, these are the things that we live in and we believe and we're oppressed by them. I also know we're oppressed uh, even by sin that we commit against our own selves. We volunteer uh, for slavery every day. Each time wondering and hoping that we could somehow get out one way or another. Jesus comes rebuking evil. Rebuking is not a word that we enjoy. You know, it sounds harsh. Like, 
It'd be fun to bring it up if we want in our communal vocabulary. No, the other day, Jared really rebuked me. Wouldn't that be fun to say? Uh, it's hard to imagine Jared Bryant actually doing that uh, in, in the way that I think we might imagine it. It would be fun to use that word, but I think we're, we're scared of it because it sounds like someone telling somebody else what to do and having some sort of power and authority over someone else. What's incredible about Jesus is he actually does have the power and the authority and he uses it to put evil in its place and to set captives free and he does it for eternity and this is what he's all about. What problem is it that Jesus solves? It's at least in part a conquering of darkness. That through Christ, freedom is given and freedom is given in whole. Next, uh, there's a story of Jesus and His disciples and they leave uh, this great event and they go uh, to one of their homes, Peter's mother-in-law's house, and they get there and they find out that uh, his mother-in-law is sick and she has a fever. And she's up in a room. And so Jesus hears this and He goes up and it says, He grabbed her by the hand and He lifted her up and the fever left. It's a gentle, beautiful story. Uh, in the NIV it says, then she began to wait on them. You know, in the ESV it says she began to serve. But it's a beautiful story. To me, I, I'm always mystified by the fact that it's in here at all. You know, like that's one of the things that I'm always confused by. Because it's just a fever. You know, this, what she's suffering from is the same kind of thing that if you go to the doctor, they're going to look at you and say, why did you come in here? Just take some Advil, get some rest, and drink some water. Uh, it's really cool. You could take 95% of the medical profession and you could boil it down to take some ibuprofen, drink some water, get some rest. Uh, that's what we do with our kids all the time. Whatever ailment they come out from bed with, we say, drink some water, lay down, go to sleep, you'll feel better in the morning. Many of you have witnessed us telling this to our children. And what Jesus is doing here with this lady, she's, she's sick. She's laying down. She'll probably wake up the next day and the fever will be gone. The body is doing itself. Like God designed the, the human uh, anatomy so that we can actually take infectious diseases and work them through our system and comes out through snot and whatever else. I'm not really a true scientist. That's the 5% of the medical profession. And she would have been fine in a few days or so. It's really just a nagging inconvenience. But Jesus goes to her, sees her, grabs her by the hand, and lifts her up anyway. I think there are often many nagging things that keep us from a full life. That keep us from being able to, to serve and to wait on tables and to actually experience the, the bounty that it is to be with Jesus and be with His disciples. Some of those nagging things might actually be, you know, we're sick and those things. But as I think about them, um, that we can often 
uh, engage in community or engage in the world around us from a place of sickness. That I, I want to be loved, so I'll serve. And maybe if I serve or maybe if I participate, then I'll be loved. It's a place of sickness. I want to feel safe. So if I do this and I make this world, then I'll feel safe. But it's a place of, of sickness. I want to matter. I want to have significance in my life. And so I'm going to serve or I'm going to care for these other people. I'm going to enter into these relationships. But all it's about is so that I will matter. I want to be accepted. And so I'm going to use other people to feel accepted. All of those things are born from a life of brokenness. And actually we're, we're serving and we're living out life in sickness. And we might say, well, that's really not that big of a deal. You know? I know whenever I begin to analyze some of my own motives and the only, the only ways that I am of being a human, and you know, sometimes with Mirella or friends or in DNA group or with a counselor, and you kind of like dive through and you get to like these root things of things that you believe, you know? Anyone ever experienced that? And then at the end you say, but if that part of me changed, if that motive got fixed, if there was actually healing there, could I even be who I am today? Doesn't that make me who I am? That, that compulsive drive to accomplish? If you, if you solve that, what would, what would happen? Jesus comes to us and says, it is a big deal. You're coping isn't coping. Jesus sees you in your brokenness and your sickness. He sees what you pass off as something that you might just get better over time with. And He takes you by the hand and He says, Arise. Jesus changes your life from sick to whole. The next story, isn't this fun? So many stories. Uh, the next story is of a man who gets cleansed from leprosy. Jesus is going about, he's walking, uh, doing his thing all along, preaching this gospel of God, right? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. And a man comes up to him and he says, If you will, you can make me clean. One of the, the sweetest phrases. I know that you can make me clean, God. I know that you can do something in my life. If you desire, if you will, can you do it? And here, Jesus, it says moved with pity, but a better word would probably be compassion or mercy. Here, Jesus stretches out His hand. Remember, the kingdom of God is at hand. And He touches Him. And He says, I will be clean. And then he was. Leprosy, uh, from what I understand, not experienced it, but is the ultimate thing of putting you into an outcast reality. Uh, one of my favorite movies growing up uh, was Ben-Hur. I don't know if you've ever watched that movie. If, or if you got to the very end, it's like four hours long. Like they were, they were making some big movies back then. Um, 
But in the end, the last hour or so, some of these people that Ben-Hur really cares about has leprosy, and that's always kind of stuck itself in my mind. Of There are these people living in this cave, you know, kind of expecting the rest of society to come and leave them tiny bits of food, but under no circumstances could they be in any sort of relationship with even family members or business partners or anybody else from their past. They were cut off. They were on the outskirts. They were quarantined. You're, you're not whole enough. What you're dealing with is so messed up, you can't be part of this. What's happening with you is a little scary. We don't want it on us. And so the lepers were sent out. And so here's a person that comes begging to Jesus, and it's not just a request to be made whole or or to be healed, but it's actually a request for, can I continue to enter and walk in society? Could I come back in? Could I enter in again? Could you do something in me that would, would make me whole enough to engage those around me? The ultimate outsider with a little tiny slither of hope, if you will, you can make it happen. I think often as we tell our own stories or listen to the stories of one another, I think we, we regularly come to those points in our lives where we feel like there's something so, so distorted within us that we can't truly belong. There's something so terribly broken within us. And here, uh, the words of cleanliness get applied. Being made clean. The old, through the Old Testament, there's tons of weird stuff. Uh, I love the Old Testament. One day we're going to preach through it for like six years. It's going to be awesome. Uh, but one of the things that, that occurs is uh, in the book of Leviticus, while they're out there in the desert and they're hearing God tell them how to live and be a people, they get all these rules for being clean and unclean. If you do this, you're not clean. So you have to go do this other project to become clean again. It usually involves washing and days away from everybody, and then you can come back in and be clean. And if you, if you touch something that is unclean, it has this transferable power, and now you're dirty, and it's this whole mess of a group of people that, uh, as you read Leviticus, you think, well, everybody must be just outside of the camp all the time trying to wash their hands to become clean again. This burden on us to do that. Jesus comes to us, and, and even if we don't believe the, the Jewish law, this is the reality that we all live in. Uh, even way out there, even in Los Angeles, we think, maybe there's something I can do to make myself clean. To make myself worthy. To, if I could just work out regularly, then, I could, then, I, then people, then I could be in. You know, If I could just... Uh, get to the next level in my career, then I, could, then I would be okay. If I could just think properly around my history and my life, then I would be okay. Jesus actually comes to this person. He reaches his hand out. He touches him and he says, be clean, belong, be included. No more are you cast out or far away on the outside. 
come into the most inner place. And then there's a paralyzed man. This was the first sermon I ever preached, so I'll give you my five minutes, which was how long that sermon was. Because uh, that's how it goes. In the beginning, you preach short, and then you preach long, and then you hopefully get short again. That's my goal. Uh, I'm, in, I'm in process. Anyway, paralyzed man. Uh, Jesus is in this crowded room. Some friends find a way for him to get in front of Jesus just because they want him to have the opportunity to hear this teaching that has authority. To hear the word said, the time is now, the kingdom of God is at hand. They wanted him to hear for himself Jesus say, repent and believe the gospel. They wanted him to know the good news about God. And so they brought him uh, down through the pit. It's a cool story. Uh, Children always love it. Uh, I'm always amazed by it. You know, think of the dirt falling on Jesus. And it was probably like when Jessica was up here trying to put the music sheet back up. Everyone's just like, let's pretend like nothing's happening. (laughs) It's like that. And then what Jesus says to this guy is not, hey, welcome to the party. You're kind of taking up Susie's spot. You made it pretty dirty here. Instead, what he does is he sees him and he goes to the core of this guy's problem and he says, your sins are forgiven. Faith has made you well. You are now a forgiven child of God. We've talked about this often, but our biggest problems in our lives are usually not our ailments or our circumstances or the conditions that we find ourselves in. It's almost always our hearts. Almost always. And Jesus looks at this man and he says, your sins are forgiven. Which launches in the great process of Jesus being crucified by the religious leaders. This is the beginning of that happening. Because they cannot imagine someone walking around the hillside taking care of lepers and people demon-possessed and sick ladies and things like that. That's fine and good. But claiming to forgive sins, that seems otherworldly. That Jesus had just met this person. So there's no forgiveness Jesus could give this guy. Like, he didn't do anything to Jesus. And yet Jesus forgives him. The sins he committed against his brothers and sisters and the people walking by. It's also kind of an affront to what we believe about people with problems. You know, it's kind of like, well, this guy's paralyzed. That seems kind of unfair, Jesus. That he, I mean, surely he's okay. He's a nice person. He's doing the best he can. He just has some ailments. But Jesus says, no. His sins are forgiven. That's the best there could ever be. There's this debate. Jesus says, what's better? What's harder to do? Telling him his sins are forgiven or having him get up and walk. And then he healed him and he got up And he took his mat and he went home. What problem does Jesus solve? 
our problem with forgiveness. And then there's Levi, or Matthew. He's a tax collector. There's a big crowd by the sea. Jesus is teaching, and there's a guy way over there taking people's money. Uh, He's someone who said, you know what? I just want to be part of the kingdom of Rome. I'm going to attach my life to to that ship, to that empire. Rome, it seems to be the winning horse, and so he did that. Jesus comes to him just like he did to the guys fishing, and he says, follow me. And here in this moment, Levi doesn't just exchange his occupation to follow Jesus, but he gives away all hopes in another kingdom that's going to be fruitful in his life. He says, you know what? Rome really isn't the winning horse. Jesus is the winning horse. That kingdom that he's talking about, that's the true kingdom. And he walks away. And unlike the fishermen, he doesn't go back to doing tax-collecting stuff. He, do- he stops being a traitor to his people. Instead, he begins to live a person belonging to the kingdom of God. He gets a name change, the whole deal. It's pretty exciting. What does Jesus change? What problem does he solve for us? He solves this problem of uh, what our life means. We're not around here just doing our occupations. Your life doesn't mean that. Your life means so much more. The problem of what oppressive evil we've been bound to, he's saying, I'll set you free. To these little nuances that keep you from engaging a full life, he says, I will grab you by the hand and say, rise. To the thing that keeps you outside of community and outside of life, I'm going to make you clean. To, to the sins that haunt you, forgiveness. To the kingdoms you want to build for yourself, I'm going to give you a true kingdom that will not let you down, that you don't have to stay up at night worrying about. I'll give you a sure and steady kingdom. And then my favorite part. There's this feast of this misfit table. He describes this table where there's uh, all the people, you can imagine that he's just gathered, all these people that were demon-possessed, all these people who were traitors like Levi, all these fishermen who really, I mean, they're, they're good, steady people, but they're not too bright. These healed paralytics who have now been forgiven of sins. And the people come around and they say, why does Jesus eat with these people? They're terrible people. They're sinners. They're not people who sin occasionally. It's like who they are. They are sinners. They're bad, terrible people. And Jesus is with them. Eating, reclining at the table, having just a leisurely time, eating olives and drinking grape juice or whatever it might be, having bread. They're just having a good time. Why is Jesus put up with this? Why does He include them at the table? Then Jesus says, He said, the, the people who are well don't need a doctor. But the sick do. He said, I didn't come for the put together. 
I came for the sinners. Jesus is saying, this is my kind of table. This is the table I came for. I came to sit and eat and live with these people. I came for them. This is an amazing place. The world sees sinners and problems and screw-ups. Right? Jesus says, I see friends. Friends I want to come to. Friends I want to die for. I think in the end, that's what uh, my former boss at the UPS struggled with. When he said, Jesus is fine. I'm just not sure what problem he solves of mine. Because see, Jesus says the way to get in, the way to participate, the way to sit at this table is not having it all figured out. How do you get invited to the misfit table? The person who says, I'll follow you. Your purpose is better than my purpose. The person who says, I need to be rescued. The person who says, I'm not well. I'm not well. The person who says, Jesus, you can, if you're willing. The person who who needs the miracle of forgiveness. The person who says, these kingdoms will not do. People, like you and me. How does the kingdom come? How is the kingdom at hand? It's at hand through us. It's at hand to us, to people like us. Humanity. Jesus came for the misfit table. And He came with the power to actually do it all. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. It is good news for you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You for this misfit table. Uh, We thank You that uh, Your name and Your kingdom is coming. It's holy. It's awesome. And it includes all of the sick and the broken and the powerless. You come to us, Jesus, calling us to forsake all other hopes. I pray as we enter this time of responding at Your table that we will see and know uh, how much You have done in our own souls and our lives. Jesus, You're good. You are worthy of our worship now. This table is is worthy of our whole lives. Thank You, Jesus. Amen.